En The Home Depot puedes encontrar soluciones de almacenamiento que se adapten a tus necesidades, como estantes industriales Husky, con una capacidad de carga de hasta 2,500 libras por estante. Así que, sí, puedes soportar el peso de tus pesas, herramientas, cajas con todos tus recuerdos y más. Porque el sistema de almacenamiento adecuado debe ajustarse a lo que tú necesitas. Ahorra más con hasta 25% menos en almacenaje seleccionado por Internet. The Home Depot. Haces más. Logras más. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., this is the On the Hill podcast. Tom Fitzgerald along with you. Doran Isaacson is the executive director of the Anti-Defamation League here in Washington, D.C., and uh, we are pleased to have you in uh, to join us uh, today to talk about what has really been kind of a, a remarkable week here in Washington where discussions of, of, of hate and anti-Semitism have really been in the, in the forefront. Uh, Duran, I, I want to start by talking about the ADL and the work that you do and how you came to the ADL. So people may hear the Anti-Defamation League but not really know what it is and what it does. Talk about that for a minute. Thanks, Tom. Uh, we are an over 100-year-old civil rights organization founded at another time in American history where uh, the defaming of groups, including the Jewish community, were uh, at a particular height. And so a group of folks came together and said, you know, we're going to form an organization that's going to be focused on stopping defamation. Uh, and importantly, in our charter, in those original documents from 105 years ago, there were two main principles, and that was to try to stop the defamation, particularly of the Jewish community, which was seeing a lot of uh, discrimination, uh, but also to work to secure justice and fair treatment to all. So we have been, since our inception, an organization focused on all minority rights, all the rights of all people to exercise their free expression, their freedom of religion, uh, and not to be discriminated against in any way violative of the principles in our Bill of Rights and our Constitution. Uh, I think the first time I met you was at American University here in Washington, D.C., and the university had, had just had a couple of incidents where someone was hanging, I believe it was bananas in trees, um, to be threatening to African-American students there. There were some other incidents on that campus about somebody was posting flyers with pieces of cotton and the Confederate flag, and, and you spoke um, to students at that, at, at that point, and it was very clear to me in that moment where this is not something that you're reminding people of the past. This is something in the very here and now which we're experiencing in a, in a very, very real way in our society right now. Absolutely, and your point about history is important. Uh, in other words, people are taking symbols, symbols that have an historical meaning uh, that are in, imbued with hate, mm -hmm. uh, with oppression, uh, actually with violence, and are utilizing those to send messages and, quite frankly, to tra traumatize and try to intimidate. Uh, that is un-American, and we have had this in our history, and so it's critically important that it be called out as, as a first step. Mm -hmm. But the more difficult work, and the one that we are most focused on, is the education that comes in the aftermath of these incidents. Let's talk about that for a moment, the education, because we've had some incidents. You know, I mentioned American University, where college students were affected by that. But we've had some incidents in some elementary schools in the, in the Washington, D.C. area of graffiti, swastikas, vandalism, uh, hate speech written on walls, and things like that. 
Is there a difference between when a child slash student may perhaps put this kind of imagery or symbols up on a wall somewhere as opposed to when an adult does it? And which one do you see as the, the one that may be more concerning? The younger child who may be mimicking something they heard from an adult or the adult who consciously has knowledge of what those symbols represent and the power they have, and they do it on their own. There's a paradox in that question, which is, of course, most children don't truly understand what they're doing. I mean, we are seeing incidents of nooses and swastikas, as you referenced, in elementary schools. Uh, yeah. the, the, we track in our anti-Semitic audit, for example, when we tracked in 17 a 57% increase overall in incidents across the country, it was over 90% in K through 12 schools. Now, we don't believe that every child that repeats something or says something or uses a symbol understands the implications. And so, in one sense, it's less serious as a reflection of actual belief in hatred, uh, actual bigotry, and yet, the fact that it's our children doing yeah. it is far more dangerous to our society. I was actually thinking that it was more concerning because that tells me that the schools are not teaching students what the Nazis were all about, that we're not teaching them what the Holocaust was about, and that we are not teaching them about the deaths of the people who were the victims of the Nazi and the Holocaust. There's no question that we have lost our way, I would argue, in many ways in terms of what we prioritize or, or how we define basic education in America. We don't teach about the Bill of Rights. We don't mm -hmm. teach about how democracy operates. Uh, we don't teach about our own history uh, sufficiently, uh, whether it's the history of, of slavery or of uh, what happened to the Native American population, or for that matter, the civil rights movement. And we don't have routine conversations about how to engage in civil discourse. Rather, uh, we have this sort of selected uh, units of different parts of history that not necessarily put together uh, in a whole. And then understand also that what schools are confronted with is something far more influential than what happens in the classroom, and that is the internet. Mm -hmm. And we do not have principles of uh, digital uh, citizenship, the idea of how you filter what you see on the internet, what's appropriate. And so if you look, and you certainly can look at even how adults comport themselves on Twitter feeds or Facebook posts, um, it seems like there's no filter anymore, that people immediately move to the most damaging, the most insulting, the most hurtful articulations that they can. And the internet seems just hardwired to spur some of the most wild conspiracy theories that have no basis in reality, but yet some people take it at face value as, as being true. We had a city councilman here in the District of Columbia who last year had to apologize for believing that Jewish people had a weather machine. He talked about the Rothschilds, that somehow people were going to control the weather. I mean, if it wasn't so serious and the underlying message there wasn't so concerning, it would almost be laughable. But it, it's not funny because it feeds this idea that there is some conspiracy out there which doesn't actually exist. Well, and it can be far more deadly than anything on, on, that we've experienced we here saw in that Washington, in certainly in yeah. Pittsburgh, where it was 
a obviously somebody not of right mind, but who came to believe there was a conspiracy with Jewish elements behind the caravan uh, and that the caravan was coming in to do harm. Which at first face you wouldn't think that there was a connection there, which there is not. There's so, not, but, yeah. but, but again, people when people are afraid, when people are looking to have explanations in their life for why their life goes a certain way, where, whether they're not empowered sufficiently, they don't have economic success or stability, they have other issues in their life. Mm -hmm. It is something about human nature where people will look for explanations, and we are, as human beings, we, te we have a tribal tendency. I think we have mm -hmm. to recognize that. So the surprise is not that this is happening. The surprise is if we don't mobilize to counter it, because mm -hmm. this has happened repeatedly in American history, and this has ha certainly happened with even more significant impact in human history. I mean, the very definition of racism is that one group goes after a smaller minority group. And if I'm not correct, the Jewish Americans represent about, what, 2%? Just a, a very small minority, yes. So you are basically would be engaging in going after one of the smallest groups in the United States that the conspiracy theorists and the, the you know, anti-Semites have come to believe are so wildly powerful that only that individual. Well, and unfortunately, speaking. they're not doing that from whole cloth. In other yeah, words, there yeah. is a long right. history rooted in, um, actually, in our religious history and uh, history of the church, the organized church. If you look back in history, you, you can go back as far as you want to go back in human history, and you will find origins, uh, particularly of how Jews are not loyal to the country in which they reside. And that, that's been utilized as a mechanism to target them, to expel them from Spain, uh, to do violence, horrific violence against them uh, in, the, uh, in the Holocaust. And at the one point, the Catholic Church itself had to make the statement that um, Jewish people were not responsible for the death of Jesus um, as, w as well, too, which had to be pointed out at, at some point in history. Um, where do we go right now? How do we turn this around? Because it seems to be a systemic problem that we are constantly dealing with. This issue of anti-Semitism will not go away, and whether it's being fed on social media, or whether it's being fed by people putting up flyers, or whether it's people marching around Charlottesville with tiki torches in their hands, this is a problem that needs to be addressed and needs to be fixed. So how does the ADL do that? It seems like an insurmountable task. Well, there are several ap approaches that we take. Uh, one is to recognize that this is happening against numerous groups in America today, uh, that the, the African-American community is subject to a higher degree of violence and intimidation than any other community in our country, and that's borne out in those statistics you referenced in terms of hate crimes. Uh, again, the largest category of hate crimes are against, uh, on the basis of race, against African-Americans. Uh, on the basis of religion, it is the Jewish community, but the largest, fastest growing segment is against the Muslim community. The most violent hate crimes are against the LGBTQ community. Uh, so the rhetoric and people taking action in, in pursuit of the rhetoric is very real. And so that signals very strongly that we have to take action. And what is the action? The action is to understand that we can't look to others to change this. There's no ideological monopoly on hate. Uh, it exists in segments of, uh, of our body politic and in our community. And what we need to do is each individual take responsibility in our interactions to, number one, 
not engage in the kind of activity that we say, not be an echo chamber for some of the conspiracy theories or criticisms that fall into this, and secondly, reflect on our own knowledge about other people's history. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, when the blackface incidents came to light down in Virginia, that was an opportunity for us to understand, number one, the impact of that symbol on, African, on the African-American community and understand the history of it. It was, it's a, it's a slur, it's a hate mm-hmm. symbol. And I will hear arguments, look, we're, we've become too PC and nobody can say anything, nobody can make a joke. Well, we're in an environment where people are willing to take action on the basis of discri- discriminatory attitudes. And so we need to understand the implications to our democracy if we don't take this seriously. When you look at the groups that you just mentioned that have dealt with us, Muslims, African Americans, Jewish Americans, let's just take Jewish Americans and African Americans for a moment. At the surface, when you talk about the kinds of discrimination each one of those groups face, there are a lot of similarities there in what each group faces in terms of battling anti-hate groups. You would think, as an outsider, it would bring those two groups together, African Americans and Jewish Americans. That's not always the case. Why is that, and and how do you bridge that gap to maybe work on issues that you do have common ground on? Well, I'm very optimistic about um, the conversation, the dialogue that uh, is going on between communities, including between uh, the African-American and Jewish community. Uh, We teach uh, and partner with uh, the African-American, or we teach about African-American history, and we partner with African-American organizations to try to elevate people's understanding of that experience. As I said, you know, we, we were partners, the Jewish community and the African American community were partners in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to acknowledge also that the Jewish community has enabled um, uh, or has experienced a type of success, a type of um, integration, fuller integration into the economy, into mm-hmm. different aspects of America have been accepted in a way and face fewer day-to-day challenges than the African-American community does. And and so we have to acknowledge that, even as we can say, look, our histories uh, share things. We see elements of what's going on. When the white supremacists marched in Charlottesville, they may have uttered things against the Jewish community, but they were highly racist as well. And the Nazi symbol is a symbol against all people of difference, not just the Jewish community. Let's look at the Muslim-American community. That's a more difficult one because throughout history Muslims and Jews have engaged in struggle against each other and even into modern times you had the PLO groups like Hamas who are sworn to the destruction of Israel Um, is that harder because you're not just dealing with the anti-hate issue that both sides may face but yet there is this generational historic animosity between these two groups of people that brings a whole other layer and a whole other context to it than perhaps the relationship between Jewish Americans and African Americans. Well, there, actually, there's a very rich history of Jewish-Muslim uh, cooperation uh, over time. And I think we have to distinguish between people of Muslim faith and certain ideolo- ideologies that have uh, been uh, promoted by certain leaders uh, you know, in a conflict. So we work closely with Muslim Americans. We believe Muslim Americans uh, desire the same rights, the same freedoms, and you know believe in the American dream. 
the same way that we do and, and, and that there is much in common and that Muslims are a, a consistent target. I mean, only last week we called out the West Virginia uh, leaders who, or, or individuals who posted a horrific poster about uh, Congresswoman Omar in the, in the state capitol associating her um, in her traditional Muslim headdress with 9-11. You know, that's mm-hmm. just unacceptable. Uh, and we called that out, even as, you know, we called out uh, the, the Congresswoman's lack of understanding of the implications of her uh, dual loyalty charge, which is very serious. So there is room to work together. We are bound, all people of faith are bound by the fact that this is still the greatest country on earth in terms of preserving religious freedom. That is mm-hmm. the reason our country was founded in terms of at least the founders that came from Europe. I, I want to acknowledge that mm-hmm. there were Native Americans here. But but in terms of the principles that brought immigrants to this country um, I- initially and the, the concept of freedom, it was all about religious freedom. Mm-hmm. We have to preserve that. And of course, we've expanded on that in the most successful experiment in bringing people of different backgrounds and ideologies and creeds and genders and gender identities together in in shared success. We can get back there. We just have to tend to our democracy. It's not something we can take for granted. When Nancy Pelosi was asked about this this week, especially in regards to Congresswoman uh, Omar, she had said at one point that uh, the Congresswoman may not have uh, the similar experience using words as the rest of us uh, do. you, know, you talked about how we're in a different time right now. Uh, that scratched a lot of heads because if you're a member of Congress, you know how powerful speech is. Is there a different standard that people in politics or public life need to uphold that maybe goes beyond what the layperson can say or think or do? One would hope, but I think uh, we, again, can look back in history and see that uh, there's no guarantee whatsoever, which is why it's so important to call things out, uh, you know, when they occur, and we do so in a nonpartisan way. Uh, We Mm -hmm. do it, uh, again, there's no ideological monopoly on hate. It can happen anywhere, and, uh, you know, I think it's critically important to understand that in this context of criticism of Israel, et cetera, Israel is a refuge for Jews who were discriminated against violently mm-hmm. in dozens of countries around the world. And the concept of the Jewish state and its creation, which, by the way, is something that has been in Jewish liturgy for thousands of years, mm-hmm. that there was a Jewish presence in Israel for thousands of years. Most this people is not don't even realize it was not until 1947, though, that it was established. Until 19, exactly. Yeah. 1947 yeah, was yeah. The, the declaration. 1948 was the official yeah. uh, creation of the state, which was basically a national declaration of refuge and of independence for mm-hmm. people who did not seem to find safety or acceptance anywhere else and when and and yet we can we can see that within legitimate political debate there can be a conversation about whether Israel is doing the right thing well, vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Well, let's talk about this because if the congresswoman had a concern about Israeli lobbying in the United States on on a political front is there a way politicians can voice either opposition or concern or criticism at Israel that does not become interpreted as anti-Semitic. Can you be critical of Israel without being called an anti-Semite? Absolutely, of course. And and in fact, my organization has done so itself. And nobody's going to call the ADL anti-Semitic. That's for sure. And if you look at 
what's wonderful about Israel is that it is a democracy. And if you, you look at the political spectrum in only Israel. Only one in that part of the world. It's the only one. It is. Yeah. And so we have to understand, look, America's alliance with Israel is based on a recognition that it's in America's interest to have that alliance. It, it, it is, and it is reflective of the shared values. It's not exactly the same kind of democracy as we have. It's a country that's been at per, in perpetual conflict since its inception. It was created based on different principles, as I just referenced, than America was created. Mm -hmm. It's a tiny little sliver of land uh, in a hostile environment. Uh, and so that, that has traditionally appealed to American sense, again, of freedom, of democracy. Mm -hmm. And you know Israel's contributions to the world in terms of technology and, and uh, the arts and innovation is extraordinary, uh, given the country that it is. That being said, we can recognize that the ongoing conflict with the Palestinians and the you know, understanding that the Palestinians themselves have rights is critically important. How do you not just want to pull your hair out sometimes, though, and say to yourself, I still have to keep explaining this, I have to explain this again? Well, I actually, it, I see hope. I, yeah, I, I really do. do. I'm, uh, you know, I, I think I What gives you, well, let's end on that. What, what gives you hope these days? What gives me hope is when I sit down with young people and I talk to them about what they aspire to do in their lives. And when I talk to them about who their friends are and what they hope for them, there is a degree of acceptance of other people that is something that could be inspiring to any adult. And we just have to give our young folks the resources. We have to set the examples. We have to try to limit the, the unfortunate inclination to go to places that we as adults tend to go in terms of our tribalism and our characterization of the other. If we commit the resource, if we have the conversations, actually this coming generation mm -hmm. uh, could really deliver a revival of the American dream across the board. And that's what I, I work to try to help achieve every day. That would be great. That would be great. Doran Azekerson, we appreciate you coming in. He is the executive director of the Anti-Defamation League here in Washington, D.C., and he joined us on The Hill this week. We also want to thank you for taking time to spend in discussion with us. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you for joining us next time. We'll see you next time on The Hill. En The Home Depot, puedes encontrar soluciones de almacenamiento que se adapten a tus necesidades, como estantes industriales Husky, con una capacidad de carga de hasta 2,500 libras por estante. Así que, sí, puedes soportar el peso de tus pesas, herramientas, cajas con todos tus recuerdos y más. Porque el sistema de almacenamiento adecuado debe ajustarse a lo que tú necesitas. Ahorra más con hasta 25% menos en almacenaje seleccionado por Internet. The Home Depot. Haces más. Logras más.